Welcome back to the long overdue Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide podcast on Prop 64. That's the initiative that passed this past November, making it lawful for adults 21 years or older to grow, possess, and use cannabis for non-medicinal purposes under certain restrictions. In addition, beginning on January 1st, 2018, Prop 64 makes it legal to sell and distribute marijuana through a regulated and taxed business. It sets up guidelines for the licensing and taxation of marijuana in a manner somewhat akin to how alcohol is licensed and taxed. However, this podcast is geared towards prosecutors, and so its focus will not be on the regulatory system, but on issues that will arise in the wake of Prop 64 involving the enforcement and prosecution of crimes involving the possession, sale, and use of marijuana. My guest for the podcast is Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Patrick Veneer. Patrick is a longtime supervisor of this county's narcotics unit. He's a former California Narcotics Officers Association Prosecutor of the Year, and he's been dealing with the passage of Prop 64 these past eight months. This podcast is approved for an hour and 45 minutes of general MCLE credit. Thanks for coming on the show, Patrick. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to join you today. Jeff, I couldn't help but notice that in talking about Proposition 64, you keep using the term marijuana. You need to get with the program. What do you mean? A couple weeks ago, the legislature passed SB 94, a bill amending Proposition 64, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act. The new bill eliminates references to marijuana throughout the statute initially acted by Proposition 64 as well as the criminal statutes impacted by Proposition 64. So what are they calling marijuana now, Patrick? Simply cannabis. Is cannabis defined in the same way as marijuana was previously defined? For the most part, yes. There is more detailed definition of cannabis than existed in the definition of marijuana. I think the intent behind swapping out marijuana for cannabis was to provide a more industrial terminology than the term marijuana, which, is, which has more negative connotations to it. Well, what about hemp, Patrick? Does the definition of cannabis include hemp? I mean, what about hemp? The definition assists the industry to differentiate the cannabis products that will be marketed for purposes of hallucinogenic effects versus other commercial uses, such as hemp, which will not fall under this new regulatory scheme. All right, hopefully we won't get into too much trouble if we continue to refer to marijuana as marijuana instead of cannabis, at least during this podcast. Prop 64 has often been referred to as the Marijuana Legalization Initiative. Is the use and possession of marijuana now legal uh, like the use and possession of, like, carrot juice would be legal? It is legal under certain circumstances. It depends on the age of the person, and it depends on the quantities that are being possessed. The spirit of Proposition 64 was to create a bright line test for when you can and when you cannot possess marijuana for personal use. So when is possession or use of marijuana going to be completely lawful? For persons 21 years of age or older, they can possess up to 28.5 grams of marijuana bud, or no more than eight grams of concentrated cannabis, or an individual can possess no more than six living marijuana plants and possess the marijuana product 
that is derived from those plants. Doesn't Prop 64 also authorize, though, the sale and distribution of marijuana? Yes and no. As of now, recreational marijuana cannot be sold. However, on January 1st of 2018, you should have a regulatory scheme in place that permits the commercial licensing and taxing of marijuana for sale. Okay, well, let's just begin by talking about the legality of straight up possession. Health and Safety Code Section 11362.1 allows persons uh, 21 years or older to possess not more than six living plants and, this is kind of key, possess the marijuana produced by the plants. Do you think under the language I just kind of highlighted, a person may lawfully possess a significantly greater amount of non-medical marijuana than 28.5 grams or 8 grams of concentrated cannabis? I do think it's possible that this law, that this law allows for the possession of greater quantities for personal use derived from marijuana that is personally cultivated. It creates the potential for unlawful sale of marijuana, but does not make such sales lawful. However, the growing of the plants is still subject to the restrictions on growing marijuana identified in Health and Safety Code Section 11362.2. So what kind of restrictions are we talking about in 11362.2? One of those restrictions is that the living plants and any marijuana produced by the plants in excess of one ounce or 28.5 grams are kept within the person's private residence or upon the grounds of that private residence. For example, in an outdoor garden area. They are locked in a space and are not visible by normal unaided visions from a public. So does this mean then that if your plants produce more than uh, an ounce of marijuana, uh, you can't travel around though with the excess amount? In other words, you can only travel around lawfully with 28.5 grams even though you could lawfully uh, produce more than that amount. If you cultivate marijuana in one place, you must store and maintain that marijuana in one place. And this is to prohibit people from producing, let's say, 10 pounds of marijuana from their plants and then transporting it for sale or distributing it. The law is designed to try to prohibit the illegal diversion of marijuana you know, into the black market. All right, so the marijuana has to be grown in a, a private residence for purposes of 11362.2. Could, uh, for instance, though, a, a herd of unlicensed apartment-dwelling pot lovers collectively grow more than six marijuana plants in a designated indoor or outdoor area of the apartment complex under the theory that the designated area constitutes the grounds of that private residence, in other words, like in an outdoor garden area? So Health and Safety Code Section 11362.2, Subdivision B, Subdivision 5 states, for the purposes of this section, private residence means a house, an apartment unit, a mobile home, or other similar dwelling. Under this definition, unless prohibited by a local ordinance, there could be hundreds of marijuana plants being grown and, and the product stored in a single apartment building that has managed to attract a swarm of marijuana growing aficionados. So long as no more than six living plants were being grown in any single apartment unit, or on the grounds of that unit, it will probably be okay. Okay, well what about, could there be like a collective grow uh, in that apartment, in a basement with hundreds of plants? This is probably not the intent behind Proposition 64 and is likely prohibited by the provisions of Proposition 64 preventing more than six living plants from being planted 
cultivated, harvested, dried, or produced within a single private residence or upon the grounds of that private residence at one time. It might be a different story if the marijuana involved was so-called medical marijuana and was being grown collectively by patients and their caregivers. Even then, there might be local ordinances prohibiting this type of collective grow. So if two or more people live in the same private residence, say we're, we're roommates in an apartment, uh, can each of us possess six marijuana plants and the produce from those plants? No. So an individual can possess up to six plants of marijuana. So if you have two people, each can possess six marijuana plants. However, if those two people occupy a single dwelling, they will be limited to six plants in a single apartment or house. Thus, if two or more people are living together, they cannot simultaneously cultivate more than six plants. Although each could constructively possess six plants, i.e., if some are possessed off-site and they could still collectively grow six living plants while simultaneously possessing the product of a prior lawful harvest along with the eight grams of concentrated cannabis apiece. All right. Notwithstanding the rule generally allowing people to possess under an ounce of marijuana or less than six grams of concentrated cannabis and, and or the marijuana produced by less than six plants, does it remain unlawful to possess marijuana under certain circumstances. The amount of marijuana from plants grown can also be subject to city and county ordinances. For example, in Santa Clara County, when it comes to medical marijuana, the county places limits on the quantities that can be stored in any one place. I can see local jurisdictions setting up similar restrictions. All right, what about, uh, are there any other restrictions on possessing under an ounce of marijuana in public? It remains unlawful to possess marijuana or marijuana products in or upon the grounds of a school, daycare center, or youth center while children are present. And what is the punishment for uh, possessing less than an ounce of marijuana or less than four grams of concentrated cannabis on the grounds of a school, daycare center, etc., while children are present? It is a misdemeanor if you are over 18 and shall be punished by a $250 fine, which can escalate uh, with prior convictions, as well as 10 days in jail upon a second offense as well. So what is the punishment if a person uh, possesses less than eight grams of concentrated cannabis, which is you know, normally allowed, uh, but over four grams on school grounds while school's in session? There is a misdemeanor punishment of up to six months if the person possesses more than four grams on school grounds while it is in session because the general law allowing up to eight grams is subject to the restrictions imposed by other sections enacted by Prop 64. So this underscores the challenges for prosecutors to charge and advocate for the appropriate punishment. As prosecutors, we must be familiar with age, location, and quantity limitations. All three can have an impact on what code section applies and the appropriate punishment. I think this ultimately strikes at the heart of Proposition 64. It's very voluminous, it's cumbersome for prosecutors as well as law enforcement officers to really understand the different scenarios that can exist, age, location, and quantity limitations that prohibit the possession and use of marijuana. Patrick, any other kind of possession that's unlawful, even if the amount of marijuana possessed is under an ounce or is less than eight grams of concentrated cannabis? 
Yes, it also remains unlawful to possess an open container or open package of marijuana or marijuana products while driving, operating, or riding in the passenger seat or the compartment of a motor vehicle, boat, vessel, aircraft, or other vehicles used for transportation is an infraction that carries a $250 fine. You know, weird thing about that is it's also unlawful under Vehicle Code Section 23222B1, uh, as uh, that section was recently amended by SB 94, to possess on the, the person while driving a motor vehicle any receptacle containing uh, cannabis. Uh, if it's been opened or has a seal broken or loose cannabis flower uh, is not in a container. However, under that section, if the receptacle or loose cannabis flower is in the trunk of the vehicle, there's no violation. And that law doesn't apply to a qualified patient or a person with an identification card uh, as defined in uh, Section 11362.7 of the Health and Safety Code. That's the, uh, one of the statutes enacted by the Medical Marijuana Program. If the, the person's carrying a current identification card or physician's recommendation, and uh, the cannabis is contained in a container or receptacle that's either sealed, resealed, or closed. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, very complicated uh, exceptions to, to, that, uh, to that statute. So if you're going to be charging someone or citing someone for the infraction of uh, basically driving with an open container of marijuana. Use 11362.4. It, it carries a greater fine, and it simply makes it unlawful to have an open container of marijuana anywhere in the vehicle, not just on the person. That's what officers should be citing the defendant for and what we should be charging. I agree. Okay, so up to now, we've been focusing on the punishment for possession of under an ounce of marijuana or under eight grams of concentrated cannabis. What is the punishment... For again, and we've always we're all talking about adults at this juncture. What is the punishment for possessing over an ounce of marijuana or over eight grams of concentrated cannabis by uh, someone over 21? It's a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor that carries up to six months in the county jail and or a $500 fine under 11357B if the person is over 21. Is the punishment different uh, for possessing marijuana? if the person is under 21? Yes, under certain limited circumstances, depending upon quantity, location, and age, over 21 can lawfully cultivate six plants or less subject to local ordinances. The plants must be kept within the person's private residence or upon the grounds of that private residence, for example, in an outdoor garden area. And they must be kept in a locked space and not be visible by normal unaided vision from a public place and not more than six living plants may be cultivated within a single private res residence or upon the grounds of that private residence at one time. So basically, uh, possession and cultivation of uh, lesser amounts than what's been designated are the same. I mean, they're subject to the, kind of the same protections. But could a local ordinance simply prohibit the growing of marijuana within a city or county? Prop 64 recognizes that a local jurisdiction may place reasonable regulations on the cultivation of six living marijuana plants. Could they ban it altogether? Local jurisdictions can ban the outdoor cultivation, but not indoor cultivation. Interestingly enough, the authors of Proposition 64 created this distinction between outdoor cultivation and indoor cultivation. I believe they did this in order to allow 
uh, easier access to marijuana in urban areas, which is where we typically see indoor cultivation. What's the punishment for cultivating six or less living marijuana plants by persons 21 years or older? There is no punishment for persons who are over 21 who cultivate six or less living marijuana plants unless the person does not cultivate the plants in accordance with local ordinances or restrictions we previously discussed or divert their harvest for sale. The punishment for violating the restrictions is an infraction with $250 fine. So if you got someone who's growing more than six living plants, they're not in compliance with the regulations. Does this mean that they're only subject to punishment by a $250 fine if they grow more than six plants? No. Technically, growing more than six plants is not within the regulations, but the punishment for not complying with the regulations applies when there are no more than six living plants. A defendant would be subject to the general punishment under 11358 for cultivating more than six living plants. So if they're punished under the general statutory punishment of 11358 for possessing more than six living plants, can they be punished as a felon? Yes, under certain circumstances. And what are those circumstances? If the person is a registered sex offender under Penal Code Section 290, uh, someone who has committed a super strike, for example, murder, torture, possession of a destructive device, or other designated serious or violent felonies, uh, someone who has two prior convictions for violation of Sections 11358, Subdivision C of the Health and Safety Code. If the new offense also involves certain specified environmental crimes, like illegal diversion of water, water pollution, use or storage of hazardous waste, threatening endangered species, or the catch-all intentionally or with gross negligence causing substantial environmental harm to public lands or other public resources. Patrick, as you just mentioned, one of the things that, if it occurs as a result of cultivating marijuana that would allow for felony punishment, is when the cultivation resulted in intentionally or with gross negligence causing substantial environmental harm to public lands or other public resources. Is gross negligence defined? Proposition 64 does not define either gross negligence or substantial environmental harm as those terms are used in Section 11358. The definition of gross negligence is used in many different contexts. We have to be careful not to wholeheartedly adopt the definition used in, for example, murder cases, because no death or GBI is going to be required in the context of environmental crimes. Prosecutors are in uncharted territory in defining substantial environmental harm. If you have a situation where a cultivation charge based upon these kinds of environmental crimes, contact a subject matter expert in the area of environmental issues. Having this type of expert uh, be a consultant or testifying your cases can be hugely helpful in defining uh, the, this type of terminology. Okay. The new version of Section 11358 says a defendant over 18 who cultivates marijuana can be punished uh, as a felon if they have two or more prior convictions uh, under uh, Paragraph 2. Does that mean that if the person is, does that mean then that if uh, the person has those prior convictions, but they occurred before the passage of Prop 64, uh, that the defendant who commits his, quote, third offense after the passage of Prop 64 can be punished as a felon? On its face, the prior convictions must be for a violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11358C. 
and that didn't exist before Proposition 64. But similar to Proposition 47, we are experiencing defendants serving time in county and state prisons and persons with prior convictions of 11358 who are looking to clear their records and have their felony convictions expunged or under 11358 redesignated as misdemeanors. Redesignation renders the conviction of subdivision C a misdemeanor. So if they go that route, they will have convictions fitting the definition even though the original conviction occurred before the, propos- before the passage of Prop 64. So there might actually be situations where uh, pre-Prop 64 convictions might be able to be used to uh, qualify these individuals for felony punishment, but uh, if there hasn't been that redesignation, uh, there's going to be a fight trying to increase uh, that person's uh, conviction for uh, cultivation to a felony uh, if the prior convictions generally occurred before the passage of Prop 64. Yes, so essentially those that have been convicted in the past of 11358 will have to choose. They will choose to either have that conviction remain a felony and live with the consequences of that felony, or they're going to have to petition the court to have that prior conviction redesignated as a misdemeanor under 11358C. And by redesignating that conviction, it could potentially subject them to an enhancement in the future if they continue with the same conduct as a felony. All right. Now, is the unlawful cultivation of marijuana by persons over 21 uh, in violation of 11358, assuming that it uh, could be prosecuted as a felony, is it a a wobbler felony? Uh, There's still some debate on this question. The prevailing view looks at 11358 as a wobbler based upon the language used in the statute that the cultivation conduct may be punished by imprisonment pursuant to subdivision H of section 1170 of the penal code if certain conditions, namely 290 registration, super strike, prior convictions, or environmental degradation are found to be present. Section 11358D, however, does not say punishment as a felony shall be imposed if the conditions designated are present. Rather, it simply says a court may impose the punishment pursuant to Section 1170H. Use of the term may can give the court authority to view the conduct as a misdemeanor or felony conduct. This issue will likely be the subject of future litigation. All right. Um, what about for people who are under 21? Is cultivating non-medical marijuana now lawful for persons under 21? Health and Safety Code Section 11362.1 did not legalize cultivation of non-medical marijuana for persons under 21 years of age. It remains unlawful for persons under 21 to cultivate non-medical marijuana. However, generally the punishment for cultivation of non-medical marijuana is just an infraction if the cultivation is done by someone under 18 and an infraction if the person is over 18 but under 21 and no more than six plants are cultivated. Again, the punishment is an infraction involving drug education and community service. So someone who's under 18 can cultivate as many plants as they want and the punishment is still an infraction. Yeah, it is. Crazy, huh? Although at some point, the numbers will be sufficiently high that a person could be charged with possession for sale, 11359. 
And as we will discuss later, I know, we will go through a similar analysis as to whether it is misdemeanor or felony possession for sale conduct. What if the person under 18 is cultivating less than six plants, but they're not in compliance with the restrictions imposed on cultivating six plants? Same punishment as cultivating more than six plants, an infraction? Yep. Although it requires leaping from statute to statute to figure it out, persons under the age of 18 who plant, cultivate, harvest, dry, or process no more than six non-medical marijuana plants without complying with the limitations imposed by Health and Safety Code 11362.2 subdivision A on such activity are also subject to the punishment designated in Health and Safety Code section 11357B1. All right. It gets pretty complicated, as you mentioned before. Let's say you have someone who's over 18, but they're under 21. What's their punishment for cultivating uh, marijuana? So Health and Safety Code 11358 subdivision B punishes those at least 18 years of age, but less than 21 years of age, who essentially cultivate uh, not more than six living plants of marijuana with a simple infraction. Under 11358C and D, persons over 18 years of age, and regardless of whether they are over or under 21 years of age, punishes the act of cultivation of no more than six living marijuana plants, the same as for someone over 21. It's either a misdemeanor uh, with six months in the county jail or a felony. It's a 16, two, or three years in state prison. Okay, let's move on to prosecutions of persons for possessing marijuana for sale in violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11359. Is possession for sale of marijuana now lawful for persons over 21? So Proposition 64 did not legalize the unlicensed possession for sale of non-medical marijuana. However, it did reduce the punishment for possession of marijuana for sale in certain circumstances, and it set up a comprehensive system that would allow licensed, regulated, and taxed sale of marijuana in the future. So street-level black market sale of marijuana is still illegal. What's the punishment for unlicensed uh, possession of non-medical marijuana for sale by someone over 18? So it's governed under 11359 subdivision B, which punishes the unlicensed possession of non-medical marijuana as a misdemeanor with six months in the county jail or by a fine of not more than $500 or both. Similar to the felony conduct on 11358, possession for sale of unlicensed non-medical marijuana is a felony under 11359 subdivision C if the person has a super strike for example, murder, attempted murder, weapons of mass destruction, torture, or a sex offender under Penal Code Section 290, or two or more prior convictions for 11359 subdivision B, or the offense occurred in the connection with the knowledge uh, of sale or attempted sale of marijuana to a person under the age of 18 years. Finally, under 11359 subdivision C, I'm sorry, under 11359 subdivision D, possession for sale can be a felony if a person 21 years of age or over knowingly hires employees or uses a person 21 years of age or younger 
in unlawfully cultivating, transporting, carrying, selling, offering to sell, giving away, preparing for sale, or peddling any marijuana. The felony conduct is a 16, two, or three year period of imprisonment in county jail, in county prison. So is the crime of possessing marijuana for sale by someone over 18 then a wobbler? For similar reasons to why cultivation of marijuana will likely be viewed as a wobbler, so will possession for sale, largely because the statute says a person who possesses cannabis for sale may be punished by imprisonment pursuant to subdivision H of section 1170 of the penal code, not shall be punished. If a defendant has two prior convictions for selling marijuana based on offenses that occurred before the passage of Prop 64, does that permit felony punishment for the post-Prop 64 crime of possessing marijuana for sale? Probably not. As we discussed with 11358, the statute requires the person to have two or more prior convictions under subdivision B of 11359. But before the passage of Proposition 64, section 11359 did not have a subdivision B. As those convictions seek relief to have their felony conduct redesignated from felony 11359 to misdemeanor 11359B, these convictions will be priorable. At least arguably priorable. Yeah. Those engaging in this conduct will have to make the decision of, again, uh, remaining convicted felons under the previous 11359 or redesignating past convictions to 11359D and, and risk those convictions being probable in the future. So what's the punishment for the unlicensed possession for sale of marijuana by persons under 18? The punishment for persons under the age of 18 for possessing any amount of marijuana for sale is just an infraction. Wow. All right. Let's take a look at some of the changes Prop 64 made to Section 11360, which covers sale, the furnishing, transporting, giving away, or importing marijuana. Is engaging in that conduct now lawful for persons over 21? Again, Proposition 64 did not legalize the unlicensed sale, transportation, giving away, or importing of non-medical marijuana. However, it did reduce the punishment for that conduct in certain circumstances, and it set up a comprehensive system to license, regulate, and tax commercial marijuana activity, which will eventually permit the licensed and regulated sale and transportation of marijuana. Health and Safety Code Section 11360 now generally makes it a misdemeanor for a person over 18 to transport, import into the state, sell, furnish, administer, or give away non-medical marijuana or offer to do any of those things. However, depending on how much marijuana is involved, the specific conduct, for example, sale, giving away, transporting, etc., and the presence of other factors, a violation of Section 11360, can be punished as an infraction or a felony. Okay, so, you know, 11360 uh, prohibits various kinds of conduct. What's the punishment for the unlicensed sale of or offer to sell non-medical marijuana by a person over 18? So Health and Safety Code Section 11360, Subdivision A, Subdivision 2, uh, governs this. Every person who transports, imports into the state, sells, furnishes, administers, or gives away, or offers to transport, import into the state, sell, furnish, administer, etc., shall be punished by a misdemeanor of six months or a fine of up to $500. All 
11360A3 governs uh, that every person who has a conviction under Penal Code Section 290 has a super strike, as previously discussed, uh, two prior convictions for 11360 um, would subject an individual to uh, a, being charged as a felony. Uh, it also governs uh, any of the knowing, knowing, knowingly selling, uh, attempted to sell, or offering uh, to sell, furnish, administer, or give away marijuana to a person under the age of 18 years, or importing, exporting, transporting more than 28.5 grams of marijuana or 4 grams of concentrated cannabis. So it covers a variety of conduct uh, that would uh, elevate the offense from a misdemeanor uh, to a felony. And that felony conduct is actually a two, three, or four years in state prison. Okay, so let's say you got a defendant over 18. That person sells or offers to sell marijuana to someone over 18. But the marijuana that is being sold is less than 28 grams or is less than 8 grams of concentrated cannabis. May the defendant still be punished pursuant to Section 11360 as a misdemeanor or felony? Yes. Largely for the same reasons a defendant who possesses marijuana for sale can still be punished pursuant to Section 11359 even though the marijuana is less than 28 grams or the marijuana was the product of the personal cultivation of less than six plants. Is a crime of selling or offering to sell marijuana by someone over 18 a wobbler? For similar reasons to why cultivation and possession for sale of marijuana will likely be viewed as a wobbler, so will the sale of marijuana, largely because Section 11360A3 does not say punishment as a felony shall be imposed if the conditions designated in that subdivision are present. Rather, it states a court may impose the punishment pursuant to Section 1170H. If a defendant has two prior convictions for transporting, importing, etc., uh, and they occurred before the passage of Prop 64, does that permit felony punishment for the post-Prop 64 crime of selling or offering to sell marijuana? So as I previously discussed with 11358 and 11359, the new section for 11360 did not exist prior to the passage of Proposition 64. Or at least the new subsections. Right, the okay. subsections. The redesignation process will affect the priority of the, the, the Prop 64 crimes. Therefore, a defendant will have to decide if they want to be saddled with a felony or go through the redesignation process to get a priorable misdemeanor offense. What's the punishment for selling or offering to sell marijuana by people who are under 18? The punishment for persons under the age of 18 who sell or offer to sell marijuana is just an infraction involving various numbers of hours of community service and drug education, depending upon the number of violations. Okay, now, as I mentioned before, 11360 prohibits various different kinds of conduct. Does the punishment for transporting, offering to transport, giving away, or offering to give away non-medical marijuana differ in any way from the punishment for selling or offering to sell marijuana? So the crimes of transporting or offering to transport marijuana and the crimes of giving away or offering to give away marijuana are in general subject to the same punishment as selling or offering to sell marijuana by a person over 18. However, Health and Safety Code Section 11362.1a makes it lawful 
to transport or give away to persons 21 years of age or older without any compensation whatsoever, not more than an ounce of cannabis, not in the form of concentrated cannabis. And section 11362.1b provides the same protection if not more than eight grams of cannabis in the form of concentrated cannabis, including as contained in marijuana products, is transported or given away. If the amount of marijuana involved in the transportation or giving away or offer to do either is not more than an ounce of marijuana, then section 11360B makes the conduct an infraction punishable by a fine of not more than $100. Nevertheless, since section 11360B provides, except as authorized by law, and section 11362.1 says, notwithstanding any other provisions of the law, when the amount of marijuana is less than 28.5 grams or an ounce, and the amount of concentrated cannabis is less than eight grams, giving away that amount of marijuana will likely not be subject to any punishment, at least when the person giving away the marijuana is over 21 and the person receiving it is also over 21. The same analysis would hold true if the defendant is merely transporting marijuana in that amount without any intent to receive compensation. So basically, if you know, you're my buddy and I'm passing you less than an ounce of marijuana uh, or, or driving it over to your house, that's fine. That's, that's lawful for people over 21 who are uh, giving it or transporting it to people who are over 21. But what about if the transportation is being done for purposes of selling the marijuana uh, being transported? Is that also not punishable or only punishable as an infraction? It's, it's probably a different story if the defendant transports less than an ounce of marijuana for the purposes of sale. Defendants will have a difficult time arguing that Section 11362.1a makes transportation for sale lawful as the inclusion of language in Section 11362.1a1 and subdivision, sub, subdivision 2 stating the transportation must be done without any compensation whatsoever likely precludes a defendant from arguing transportation of the described amount of marijuana or concentrated cannabis for purposes of selling is protected by those sections. What is the punishment, if any, if the amount of marijuana transported or given away is not more than an ounce or more than eight grams of concentrated cannabis, and the defendant who's doing the the conduct is under 18 or under 21? The punishment for transporting or giving away marijuana in any amount uh, in violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11360, whether it is the sale, transporting, giving away, all the different uh, scenarios described under 11360 for persons under the age of 18 is the punishment dictated in 11357B1. It's an infraction. It's an infraction that simply requires drug education and community service regardless of the amount of marijuana. Health and Safety Code 11362.1 makes transportation or giving away of marijuana lawful for any person over 21 under certain circumstances does not apply to persons under 21. What is the punishment, if any, when a person over 21 offers to give away or give away or gives away marijuana to someone under 18? Well, that's a different story. Giving away or offering to give away marijuana to someone under 18 is, in general, subject to the same punishment as selling or offering to sell marijuana by a person over 18. 
when the conduct prohibited by Section 11360A involves the knowing sale, attempted sale, or knowingly offering to sell, punishing, or furnishing, administering, or giving away marijuana to a person under the age of 18, it is a felony, and it's subject to a two, three, or four-year uh, period of imprisonment. Indeed, Health and Safety Code Section 11361 may prevent even greater punishment if the defendant gives cannabis to a minor. Also, Health and Safety Code 11360A also governs the punishment for giving away concentrated cannabis to a minor, and that is described in Health and Safety Code, as I said, 11360. Does the punishment for furnishing or administering marijuana, in other words, is it slightly different conduct than transporting or offering to sell? Does the punishment for furnishing or administering marijuana or offering to furnish or administer marijuana differ in any way from the punishment for selling or offering to sell marijuana? So it really depends upon the intent of the individual. If, if the person is furnishing or administering marijuana and they don't intend to receive any sort of compensation for it, it's not for monetary gain, then it's gonna largely be treated as if you're giving away marijuana, which could not be a violation of the law, potentially. But if the intent behind it, certainly the way in which it's being furnished or it's being, it, it's being administered, uh, lends itself to some type of benefit being conferred onto the person who's providing it, then it can be treated as if you are selling or offering to sell marijuana and punished under either 11359 or 11360. Yeah, there's a slight difference between administering and, and furnishing. You know, administering has a, has a specific uh, type of definition dealing with applying a controlled substance to the body by, by, by a practitioner or someone who is, uh, you know, like a, a doctor or something along those lines. That won't involve necessarily so much giving away or, or uh, selling marijuana. It's got its own sort of specific definition, which is probably outside the protections of, uh, of 11362.1, uh, which makes it uh, you know, legal to give away less than uh, 28.5 grams of marijuana. Um, I still think, though, that the administering, if there is a monetary benefit that's being conferred on the side of the person who's administering it, and it's not for legitimate medical purposes, then it can be arguably prosecuted under 11360. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's uh, because it's going to fall under sale, basically. Correct. Right? And, uh, but you might not even be gaining any kind of profit and be, be administering marijuana uh, and run afoul of the uh, 11360 if you're doing it uh, in a manner that they only want certain you know, health practitioners to, to, to do it. I would agree. Is importing, offering to import, or attempting to import marijuana into California subject to the same punishment as when marijuana is sold under Section 11360. It doesn't appear that importing or offering to import or attempting to import marijuana into California will be treated any differently than selling or offering to sell marijuana for purposes of deciding punishment, with one exception. Unlike when it comes to the selling or offering to sell marijuana, which by itself does not allow for felony punishment, if the offense involves the import, offer to import, or attempted 
import into the state of more than 28.5 grams of marijuana or more than four grams of concentrated cannabis and the defendant is over 18, that defendant is potentially subject to two, three, or four years of imprisonment. Patrick, let, let's now talk a little bit about the impact of Prop 64 on Health and Safety Code Section 11361. That's the statute that makes it unlawful for a person over 18 to hire, employer, use a minor in unlawfully transporting, carrying, selling, giving away, preparing for sale, or peddling any cannabis. It also makes it unlawful to sell or offer to sell any cannabis to a minor or to furnish, administer, give, or offer to furnish, administer, or give away any cannabis to a minor under 14 years of age. And finally, it makes it unlawful to induce a minor to use cannabis. That carries a punishment in state prison uh, of three, five, or seven years. And a different subdivision of that section, 11361, provides a state prison sentence of three, four, or five years if the person is 18 years or older and they're furnishing, administering, giving, or offering to furnish, administer, or give away any cannabis to a minor who's 14 years of age or uh, older in violation of the law. Do you think the language in 11361 was impacted at all by Prop 64? No. Prop 64 did not impact it, and SB 94 did not substantively change the section 11361 either. SB 94 simply replaced the term marijuana with cannabis. However, potential issues may arise in deciding what the punishment should be for an adult who sells, furnishes, administers, or gives away marijuana or offers to do so to a minor. How so? Well, expect the defense to argue that the lesser wobbler punishment designated in section 11360 as the punishment that must be imposed for selling, furnishing, administering, or giving away marijuana to minors. That punishment is no more than two, three, or four years. Well, Patrick, under what theory could they argue that? The defense may argue that section 11360 precludes imposition of a sentence under section 11361 because the sentence provided for in section 11361 is not provided for in section 11360, and the term authorized by law should be read as referring to laws that permit the conduct otherwise prohibited by section 11360. However, the fatal flaw with this argument is that authorized by law generally refers to other laws that permit different punishment. Moreover, the language authorized by law predates the amendment to section 11360, and that language has never held to preclude punishment pursuant to section 11361 when the defendant sold or gave away marijuana to a minor. Is that the only argument of the defense for trying to get the lesser punishment of 11360 imposed instead of the a punishment imposed by 11361? No. The defense may also claim that even if the language of section 11360 does not preclude punishment for selling or giving away marijuana, either more or less than an ounce, Prosecution under Section 11361 is still precluded by the general versus specific rule. And what, what rule is that? Sometimes the legislature will enact one statute covering the same conduct as another statute, intending that only one of the statutes apply to certain conduct. To help ascertain the legislature's intent when the question of whether one statute is meant to preclude prosecution under a different statute, courts have developed several rules of construction. 
One of these rules of construction is the general versus special rule. It is also known as the Williamson rule or the doctrine of preclusion or preemption. The idea is that where the general statute standing alone would include the same matter as the special act and thus con conflict with it, the special act will be considered as exception to the general statute, whether it was passed before or after such general enactment. The rule will only apply in two circumstances. When each element of the general statute corresponds to an element on the face of the special statute, or it appears from the entire context that a violation of the special statute will necessarily or commonly result in a violation of the general statute. However, even when these prerequisites for the rule are met, where it is evident the legislature did not intend to preclude application, the general versus special won't apply either. The defense will claim that section 11360A1 reflects the state's determination as to the appropriate punishment for giving away marijuana to minors or others, and section 11360A3 reflects the state's determination as to the appropriate punishment for selling marijuana to minors. The defense may claim that Proposition 64 was meant to legalize the sale and giving away of marijuana in general and reduce the penalties for unlicensed sale or giving away of marijuana, especially in small quantities, even when the recipient of the marijuana is a minor. The defense will point to the fact that properly licensed sale to, to minors of marijuana is even complete, completely lawful if the minor has a government-issued identification card allowing for, for the use of medical marijuana. Moreover, the defense may claim that Section 11360, insofar as it identifies the punishment to be imposed for giving away marijuana to anyone, including minors, as a misdemeanor, and for selling marijuana to minors as a wobbler, is the more specific statute than 11361, because each element of the reduced punishment for those offenses under Sections 11360A2 and 11360A3, subdivision large C, either corresponds to an element on the face of Section 11361 or that a violation of 11360A2 or 11360A3C will necessarily or commonly result in a violation of Section 11361. How should we respond to that? Well, the IPG lays out a pretty lengthy response, but basically the easiest response to the defense's argument is that the qualifying language of Section 11360 itself eliminates any conflict with other statutes. Specifically, by saying, except as otherwise provided by this section or as authorized by law, any conflict with other statutes authorizing punishment for the same conduct, such as Section 11361, is eliminated. Moreover, there is plenty of evidence that the state did not want to prevent the application of Section 11361 to persons over 18 who give away, furnish, administer, or sell to minors. Neither the voters pursuant to Proposition 64 nor the legislature pursuant to SB 94 saw fit to tinker with the substance of Section 11361. And throughout Proposition 64, there are strong indications that the exposure to or distribution of marijuana to minors by persons over 18 should not be tolerated. You know, not all the conduct that's covered by 11361 
is also covered in 11360. Can, can we prevail on that ground as well? Yeah. Prosecutors should also be sure to widow down what specific conduct prohibited by Section 11360 the defense is claiming is also potentially covered by Section 11361. For example, under 11361, furnishing, administering, or giving away marijuana to minors applies when the minor is under 14. The conduct being punished under this aspect of Section 11361 Subdivision A is a more egregious version of the conduct that is subject to punishment pursuant to Section 11360. In this circumstance, the general versus specific rule is inapplicable, nor should there be any issue if the prosecution proceeds on a theory that the defendant induced a minor to use cannabis in violation of Section 11361, since this also is not conduct referenced by any statute enacted or amended by Proposition 64. The defense may also seek to use the general versus specific role in an attempt to preclude prosecution under Section 11361 based on the theory that Section 11359D is the more specific statute when the prosecution pursuant to Section 11361 is based on a claim defendant hired, employed, or used a minor in unlawfully transporting, carrying, selling, giving away, preparing for sale, or peddling any cannabis. All right, so if the claim is that uh, 11359D precludes 11361's application, how do we respond to that one? So Health and Safety Code Section 11359D allows for enhanced punishment of a person 21 years of age or over who possesses cannabis for sale under subdivision H of Section 1170 of the Penal Code if the possession for sale involves knowingly hiring, employing, or using a person 21 years of age or younger in unlawfully cultivating, transporting, carrying, selling, offering to sell, giving away, preparing for sale, or peddling any cannabis. So it is really more of an enhancement of possessing cannabis for sale rather than being the same crime as actually engaging in that conduct prohibited by 11361. The language of Section 11359 also is contingent upon there not being another law that applies because Section 11359 states every person who possesses for sale any cannabis except as otherwise provided by law shall be punished as follow. This language eliminates the conflict. Moreover, the same evidence of voter intent that undermines the idea that the state wanted to prevent the application of Section 11361 to persons over 18 who gives away, furnishes, administers, or sells to minors helps show that there was no voter intent to reduce punishment for persons who hire, employ, or use minors in unlawfully cultivating, transporting, carrying, selling, offering to sell, or any of the other conduct that involves cannabis. None of this conduct in Section 11361 requires the defendant to possess cannabis for sale and thus, the elements of Section 11361 are distinct from the crime of possessing cannabis for sale. In addition, the crime described in Section 11361 requires the minor be under 18. The enhanced punishment described in Section 11359D only requires the minor be under 21. Thus, Section 11361 punishes conduct more egregious than that covered by Section 11359D. Some of the statutes enacted or amended by Prop 64 require persons convicted of various marijuana offenses to complete 
drug education or counseling. Is the drug education or counseling authorized by some of the statutes that were enacted or amended by Prop 64 always mandatory? No. Although the language in these sections seems mandatory, Health and Safety Code Section 11361.1 provides the drug education and counseling requirements under Sections 11357, 11358, 11359, and 11360 and by that way, these education and counseling must be provided free to the participants. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about 11379.6. Uh, Health and Safety Code Section 11362.1 now allows people to process under an ounce of cannabis uh, or not more than eight grams of cannabis and not more than six living cannabis plants. Did Prop 64 make the manufacture of concentrated cannabis lawful for persons over 21? No, Health and Safety Code Section 11379.6 makes it unlawful to manufacture, produce, process, or prepare either directly or indirectly by chemical extraction or independently by means of chemical synthesis any controlled substance including concentrated cannabis. Proposition 64 did not make any amendments to section 11379.6. It is still valid since another section of Prop 64, section 11362.3, subdivision A, subdivision 6, provides that section 11362.1 does not permit any person to manufacture uh, concentrated cannabis using a volatile solvent unless done in accordance with a license under Division 10, commencing... Which is, the, that's the regulatory scheme. Yeah, that's the okay. regulatory scheme. And 11362.4D also says, a person who engages in conduct described in A6 shall be subject to punishment under Section 11379.6. That's correct. Now, is butane, which is what's used to make like honey oil or concentrated cannabis, considered a volatile solvent for purposes of Section 11362.3? Yes, Proposition 64... A volatile solvent means a solvent that is or produces a flammable gas or vapor that, when present in the air in sufficient quantities, will create explosive or ignitable mixtures. This type of solvent, butane, used to extract marijuana resin in producing concentrated cannabis, fits the definition of a volatile solvent under 11362.3. Well, Patrick, in a little while, uh, I'm going to be asking you some questions dealing with what police can or cannot do when it comes to investigating marijuana-related offenses. So I want to go over some of the other kinds of marijuana-related crimes or infractions that would allow an officer to potentially contact or, or cite an individual. Does Prop 64, for example, allow driving under the influence of marijuana? Absolutely not. Does Prop 64 uh, still prohibit driving around with open containers of marijuana? We discussed those earlier. It can. Does Prop 64 uh, prohibit driving around while smoking or ingesting marijuana? Right now, Prop 64 does not allow it, but it doesn't exactly prohibit it either. Section 11362.3 says that Section 11362.1, which generally makes it lawful to smoke or ingest marijuana, 
does not permit any person to smoke or ingest cannabis or cannabis products while driving, operating a motor vehicle, boat, vessel, aircraft, or other vehicle used for transportation. Nor does it permit any person to smoke or ingest cannabis or cannabis products while riding around. However, Prop 64 does not define the crime or any punishment for smoking or ingesting marijuana while driving or define the crime or any punishment for smoking or ingesting marijuana while a passenger in a vehicle. Uh, it's possible that that oversight is going to be corrected. There's currently a bill in the legislature that would amend vehicle code sections 23.220 and 23.221 to make smoking or ingesting marijuana or any marijuana product while driving or riding around as a passenger in a motor vehicle. Uh, they're going to make that an infraction with a $100 fine. Does Prop 64 allow smoking marijuana in any location? No. Even though Section 11362.1 allows people to smoke or ingest marijuana generally, it does not permit any person to smoke or ingest cannabis or cannabis products in a public place, except in accordance with Sections 26200 of the Business and Professions Code, or to smoke cannabis or cannabis products in a location where smoking tobacco is prohibited, or to smoke cannabis or cannabis products within a thousand feet of a school, daycare center, or youth center while children are present at the school, daycare center, or youth center except in or upon the grounds of a private residence or in accordance with sections 26200 of the Business and Professions Code and only if such smoking is not detectable by others on the grounds of the school, daycare center, or youth center while children are present. All right, so there's a lot of areas where you, you're not going to be allowed to smoke marijuana. What's the penalty for violating these pro prohib prohibitions on smoking? Generally, it's an infraction with a $100 or $250 fine. But if the person who violates the prohibition is under 18, then it's drug education and counseling. It is also unlawful to possess smoke or ingest cannabis or cannabis products in or upon the grounds of a school, daycare center, or youth center while children are present. This violation carries a fine for the, for the first violation, but a second violation can result in a fine of not more than $500 fine or by imprisonment in the county jail for a period of not more than 10 days. Patrick, uh, some defense attorneys have argued that the general versus special rule, which we talked about earlier, bars prosecution for a felony violation of Health and Safety Code Section 11366 when the crime charged under 11366 is opening or maintaining a place for the purpose of unlawfully selling, giving away, or using marijuana. Their theory is that all the conduct prescribed in 11366 is either lawful, an infraction, or a misdemeanor when the controlled substance at issue is marijuana. Is there anything to this argument? No. In a nutshell, the argument is flawed because the general versus special rule does not apply unless each element of the general statute corresponds to an element on the face of the special, or it appears from the entire context that a violation of the special statute will necessarily or commonly result in a violation of the general statute. Neither of the circumstances necessary for application of the general versus special rule apply to prohibit prosecutions under Health and Safety Code sections 11357, 11358, 11359, or 11360. To prove a violation of section 11366, it must be shown the defendant had a purpose of continuously or repeatedly using a place for selling, giving away, or using a controlled substance. 
none of these statutes amended or enacted by Proposition 64 either individually or collectively correspond to the elements of Health and Safety Code Section 11366, nor will a violation of any of those statutes necessarily or commonly result in a violation of Section 11366. And in any event, permitting unlicensed persons to set up locations for the sale and distribution of marijuana, which will occur if Section 11366 could not be enforced pursuant to the general versus special rule is inconsistent with the protections to public health and safety promised by Proposition 64. And allowing persons to maintain unregulated places for the sale, giving away, and use of marijuana is inconsistent with the intent behind Proposition 64 to set up a comprehensive system of taxation and regulation of the sale and distribution of marijuana. Prosecutors who are faced with this claim should contact IPG since we have a comprehensive brief responding to this argument. Patrick, as long as we're talking about that system, Prop 64 and SB 94 make it clear that once a system of taxation, regulation, and licensing is set up, all kinds of conduct, like sale, transportation, cultivation, uh, will be lawful. Is that system set up yet? And if it's not, is the unlicensed conduct that's prohibited by sections 11357, 11358, 59, and 11360, is it presently lawful until the system of licensing, regulation, and taxation is set up? It's not set up yet, but the state is working on it. If a person is licensed to engage in commercial cannabis activity, which includes the cultivation, possession, manufacturing, distribution, processing, storing, laboratory testing, labeling, transportation, distribution, delivery, or sale of marijuana and does so in accordance with the requirements and regulations governing licensed commercial marijuana activity, the activity is lawful under California law. Although it does not appear that the license will allow persons to import marijuana or administer marijuana. However, such regulations and licensing is not available yet and likely will not be in effect until uh, 2018. An unlicensed commercial marijuana activity remains unlawful regardless of whether the system of licensing or regulation has been instituted. As expressly stated in Subdivision C of Business and Professions Code Sections 26038, notwithstanding Subdivision A, criminal penalties shall continue to apply to an unlicensed person engaging in commercial cannabis activity in violation of this subdivision. Does the system authorize civil penalties in addition to the criminal penalties? Penalties? Yes, civil penalties may also be imposed. Subdivision A of sections 26038 states, a person engaging in commercial cannabis activity without license required by the subdivision shall be subject to civil penalties of up to three times the amount of the license fee for each violation, and the court may order the destruction of cannabis associated with that violation in accordance with section 11479 of the Health and Safety Code. Each day of operation shall constitute a separate violation of this section. So who goes about bringing these civil actions? A district attorney or county council may bring an action for those civil penalties, and the penalty, penalties collected must first be used to reimburse the district attorney or county council for the cost of bringing the action. All right, let me ask you a little bit about sort of medical marijuana. Does Prop 64 have any immediate impact on laws allowing the possession of medical marijuana under the Compassionate Use Act, sometimes referred to as Prop 215, that's the act which, back in 1996, exempted patients and primary caregivers from, from being prosecuted for 
possession or cultivation of marijuana if they had a, a, a recommendation or approval from a physician and they're only possessing it in an amount reasonably related to their medical needs. Did, it, did, it, did Prop uh, 64 have any direct impact on that uh, act, the Compassionate Use Act? No, it didn't pertain to medical marijuana. It, it only specifically focused on the recreational use of marijuana. Did Prop 64 have any immediate impact on the laws that were enacted back in 2003 by the Medical Marijuana Program Act? Now, that's the act which exempted patients and primary caregivers who were acting in compliance with the MMP and the Compassionate Use Act who collectively associated to cultivate marijuana for medical purposes. It exempted them from criminal liability for possessing, uh, possessing for sale, cultivating, uh, maintaining a nuisance or a place for using, manufacturing, storing, or distributing marijuana. And it permitted those persons to possess up to eight ounces of dried marijuana and six mature or 12 immature plants. Was the MMP impacted by uh, Prop 64 insofar as those protections were concerned? 64 did not touch the MMPA. What about uh, the portion of the MMP which enacted a, uh, a law that said that no person or designated primary caregiver in possession of a valid identification card uh, shall be subject to arrest for possession, transportation, delivery, or cultivation in, of, of medical marijuana in amount uh, authorized by that, that statute unless there's reasonable cause to believe that the information contained in the card is false or falsified, the card had been obtained by means of fraud, or the person is otherwise in violation of, of the, the provisions of uh, those sections. You know, Proposition 64 enacted a series of new statutes imposing new protocols on when and under what circumstance identification cards authorizing possession of medical marijuana may issue in the future. It didn't change the laws that provided protection from prosecution for possession of medical marijuana under the Compassionate Use Act, nor did it change the laws enacted by the MMPA that expanded the protections provided by the CUA. Okay. Well, what about SB 94? That's the bill that we've been talking about that just went into effect a few weeks ago. Did that make any change to the laws of medical marijuana uh, at all? In 2015, California enacted three bills that established a comprehensive state regulatory framework for licensing and enforcement of cultivation, manufacturing, retail sale, transportation, storage, delivery, and testing of medicinal cannabis in California. This regulatory scheme was known as the Medical Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act, um, commonly referred to as MRSA. SB 94 eliminated the separate regulatory scheme for medical marijuana and amended the scheme to put into effect Proposition 64 by placing both cannabis and medical cannabis under the same general commercial regulatory scheme, now entitled the Medicinal and Adult Use of Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to try and pronounce the acronym that they came up for that one. But. I'm not going to try. <laughs> Did SB 94 preserve the special protections given to possession, cultivation, and distribution of medicinal marijuana? Yes. However, SB 94 added a new section to business and professions codes that described what activities by qualified patients and primary caregivers would be outside the definition of commercial cannabis activity. Specifically, Business and Profession Code Section 26033 states, a qualified patient as defined in Section 11362.7 of the Health and Safety Code 
who cultivates, possesses, stores, manufactures, or transports cannabis exclusively for his or her personal medical use, but who does not provide, donate, sell, or distribute cannabis to any other person is not thereby engaged in commercial cannabis activity and is therefore exempt from the license requirements of this subdivision. A primary caregiver who cultivates, possesses, stores, manufactures, transports, donates, or provides cannabis exclusively for the personal medical purposes of no more than five specified qualified patients, and that's important, for whom he or she is the primary caregiver within the meaning of 11362.5 of the Health and Safety Code, but does not receive remunerations for these activities except for compensation and full compliance with subdivision C of 11362.765 of the Health and Safety Code is exempt from the licensing requirements of this subdivision. All right, bottom line is uh, persons who've been engaging in sort of collectively uh, growing medicinal marijuana are, are not necessarily going to be covered by what is considered commercial uh, cannabis activity under Prop 64. That's correct. All right. What I'd like to do now is ask you some questions about issues that are likely to crop up when law enforcement is uh, spotting small amounts of marijuana or smelling marijuana. Now, prior to the passage of Prop 64 in California, could the odor of marijuana emanating from a vehicle provide probable cause to conduct a search of the entire vehicle? Yes, it was well established in California that the odor of marijuana emanating from a vehicle provided probable cause to conduct a search of the vehicle under the automobile exception to the warrant requirement, which just requires probable cause to believe there will be evidence of a crime found in the vehicle. And was this true even though, as in 1975, possession of less than an ounce of marijuana was just a misdemeanor carrying only a $100 fine? Yes. And even though possession of less than an ounce of marijuana was made an infraction with a $100 fine back in 2011? Yes. Was the ability to search a vehicle based on the odor of marijuana impacted by the passage of the medical marijuana laws that rendered possession of limited amounts of marijuana lawful under certain circumstances? Only in part. If there was evidence that would eliminate probable cause to believe the odor stemmed from any unlawful possession of marijuana, it might prevent a search, but usually that was not the case, and there are a couple of published cases, Strasburg and Waxler, that permitted searches of vehicles based on the odor of marijuana and or seeing less than an ounce of marijuana, even where there was some evidence the driver of the car would lawfully possess marijuana under the Compassionate Use Act or the medical marijuana program. You know, Patrick, I, I expect that the reasoning of those cases is likely going to play a pretty large role in determining whether searches of vehicles can still be conducted in a post-Prop 64 world based on the odor of marijuana. But now that under an ounce of marijuana or eight grams of concentrated cannabis is completely legal in many circumstances for adults, do you think that the odor of marijuana coming from a vehicle still provides probable cause to search the vehicle? It is an open question whether the passage of Prop 64 has changed the law regarding whether an officer has probable cause to search a vehicle based on smelling the odor of marijuana coming from a vehicle. What can prosecutors expect the defense counsel to be arguing at motions to suppress searches of vehicles based on the odor of marijuana? 
Defense counsels will likely point out that pursuant to Health and Safety Code Section 11362.1, Subdivision A, it is no longer unlawful in California for a person over 21 to be in possession of less than an ounce of marijuana unless it is possessed upon the grounds of a school, daycare center, or youth center while children are present, or it is possessed in an open container or package while the person is driving, operating, or riding in the passenger seat or compartment of a vehicle used for transportation. Moreover, Council will highlight Section 11362.1, Subdivision C, which states, marijuana and marijuana products involved in any way with conduct deemed lawful by this section are not contraband nor the subject to seizure, and no conduct deemed lawful by this section shall constitute the basis for detention, search, or arrest. In light of this language, Defense counsel may argue that since possession of less than an ounce of marijuana is lawful and the odor of marijuana may rise from the possession of less than an ounce of marijuana, neither the possession of less than an ounce of marijuana nor an odor that cannot be determined to rise from more than a lawful amount of marijuana can provide the necessary probable cause to search the, to search the vehicle of a defendant over the age of 21. In addition, Defense counsel may argue that pre-Prop 64 case law allowing vehicle searches based on seeing a small amount of marijuana or the odor of marijuana is no longer valid because it relied on the fact that marijuana generally remained a criminal offense. Whereas now, possession of less than an ounce of marijuana by persons over 21 is legal and per section 11362.1 subdivision C, marijuana and marijuana products involved in any way with conduct deemed lawful are not contraband. You know, Patrick, some of these arguments are, don't sound like they're entirely without merit. How, how would we respond to these defense arguments? First, prosecutors should point out that Section 11362.1 does not say marijuana is no longer contraband, nor does it say possession of marijuana under an ounce cannot be the basis for a search. What it says is marijuana and marijuana products involved in any way with conduct deemed lawful by this section are not contraband nor subject to seizure and no conduct deemed lawful by this section shall constitute the basis for detention, search, or arrest. Even after the passage of Prop 64, marijuana remains a Schedule One controlled substance. And while marijuana possessed lawfully is not contraband, unlicensed possession of marijuana more than an ounce is not possessed lawfully and remains contraband. When an officer searches a vehicle based on seeing a small amount of marijuana or smelling the odor of marijuana, the officer is not searching based on lawful conduct, but on the reasonable inference that the person may be in unlawful possession of greater than an ounce of marijuana. Geez, that seems like a little bit of sophistry. Why? There are plenty of cases out there from the United States Supreme Court stating that circumstances involving hopefully lawful conduct might justify the suspicion that criminal activity was afoot. In People v. Sousa, the California Supreme Court noted that the possibility of an innocent explanation does not deprive the officer of the capacity to entertain a reasonable suspicion of criminal conduct. That's true, but that doesn't mean that apparently lawful conduct will normally provide probable cause to search. I mean. For example, would a closed container of alcohol in a vehicle provide probable cause to believe open containers will be found? Isn't the relevant inquiry 
focused on the degree of suspicion that attaches to particular types of non-criminal acts? Why is it suspicious for a car to smell of marijuana when marijuana, at least in small amounts, is generally lawful? Aren't there a couple of cases indicating that seeing a person in possession of a small, lawful amount of marijuana will not justify the inference that more marijuana in an unlawful amount will be present? There's a case back from 2008 called People versus Swa where you had a, some officers who were responding to a, a noise disturbance call. They smell burnt marijuana coming from an apartment and see someone smoking marijuana inside the apartment. The court held in that case that evidence of marijuana use did not establish existent circumstances justifying the warrantless entry into the home to preserve from imminent destruction uh, evidence of a crime punishable by incarceration because the officer's observations, they said, did not necessarily suggest possession of more than 28.5 grams of marijuana, which was a non-jailable offense. And thus the evidence sought to be preserved didn't relate to a crime sufficiently serious to support a warrantless entry. And then in People v. Torres, the court held that the odor of burning marijuana coming from a hotel room didn't support the belief that more than 28.5 grams of marijuana would be found in a room. They didn't find that sufficient to justify an exigent uh, warrantless entry. Look, under the medical marijuana laws, officers were entitled to search a vehicle based on smell under the theory there was probable cause to believe the possession was unlawful even though the smell could easily have come from lawfully possessed marijuana. The case of Hua and Tories were primarily focused on whether exigent circumstances could justify entry into the house, and both were distinguished in the Waxler case. Yeah, but when Waxler was decided, and Waxler's that case which allowed the search of a, a vehicle, uh, the entire vehicle based on the smell of marijuana, even post all these medical marijuana laws, when Waxer was decided, possession of limited amounts of marijuana was the exception to the general rule, prohibiting marijuana. Now the situation's reversed. The rule is generally now possession of limited marijuana, limited amounts of marijuana, is lawful. Well, the same is true in Colorado, uh, but in Colorado, Supreme Court decision of People versus Zuniga from 2016 upheld a search of a vehicle based in part on odor of marijuana even though Colorado has legalized possession of one ounce or less of marijuana, since a substantial number of other marijuana-related activities remain unlawful under California law, and given that state of affairs, the odor of marijuana is still suggestive of criminal activity. Well, the Zuniga court, though, the, the Colorado case you've just been talking about, didn't permit a search of a vehicle based on odor alone. It simply held that the odor of marijuana is relevant to the totality of circumstances test and can contribute to a probable cause determination. In addition to, the, to what they call the strong odor of raw marijuana, there were other circumstances that supplied or helped supply probable cause, including the fact that two of these occupants of the car gave different stories about their time in Colorado. Both were extremely nervous, and there was a canine unit that alerted at the rear of the vehicle. But even more importantly, Patrick, there's no provision in Colorado's law regarding marijuana that's comparable to Section 11362.1c, which prohibits detentions or searches based on conduct deemed lawful under Prop 64. Well, that may be true. There is no comparable provision to 11362.1 in Colorado, but it just brings us back to the issue of whether an officer doing the search is doing it based on 
reasonable inference of unlawful conduct versus whether the officer is doing it based solely on lawful conduct. Based just on the smell, we simply do not know if it is lawful or not. And that rationale that we don't know if the smell stems from lawful or unlawful possession has been used in other cases to justify a search based on probable cause. Well, those other states, though, where, where you get some of that kind of language, those are states where there was only decriminalization. Possession is still a, a civil infraction in those states, but that's not true in California. True, but like in Colorado, in California, the smell of marijuana is associated with a variety of criminal activity, including the infraction of having an open container of marijuana or the misdemeanor of driving under the influence of marijuana. I don't know that the basic principles change. At the very least, I think smell can still help provide a basis for probable cause in conjunction with other evidence. Well, at a minimum, there's some ambiguity. So what do we tell officers when they ask if smell can support a search of a vehicle? And when I say smell, I mean the odor of marijuana. I tell them that it can, but don't rely exclusively on the smell. Work the case. First, do they smell fresh or burnt marijuana? Remember that the impermissible conduct is based upon age, quantities, and location. I mean, that's sort of the general principles when you're looking at the body of, of new laws under Proposition 64. If it's burnt marijuana, uh, is it driving while under the influence of marijuana, or is it an open container, or is it smoking while driving? If it's fresh marijuana, get the age of the suspect. Ask to see the quantity the suspect is in possession. Is the occupant in possession of greater than an ounce? Is there a school nearby? Odor can support a further investigation of a host of crimes we've discussed today. Do you think it makes a difference in the analysis depending on whether the odor of marijuana is fresh or unburnt marijuana as opposed to the smell of burnt, mar burnt marijuana? The smell of burnt marijuana or marijuana smoke may not provide the exact same suspicion that an unlawful amount of marijuana is possessed as the smell of fresh marijuana. However, this does not necessarily mean that the smell of burnt marijuana cannot be considered in developing suspicion to search a vehicle on the basis the defendant is in possession of an unlawful amount of marijuana. There are cases minimizing the distinction between the fresh and burnt marijuana odors, and smelling either odor can support probable cause to search. For example, in People v. Waxler, the court held a law enforcement officer may search a vehicle pursuant to the automobile exception to the warrant requirement where the officer smells burnt marijuana and sees burnt marijuana in the defendant's car. And in People v. Fitzpatrick from the 1970s, the court held an officer had probable cause to search defendant's person and vehicle based on the odor of burnt marijuana since the inference that marijuana is present on the person of one who has recently smoked is not unreasonable and it seems reasonable to believe that one who has recently smoked a marijuana cigarette has others in his possession. More recently, in the unpublished case of People v. Green, the court held probable cause existed to search, to search a vehicle regardless of the fact the officer was unable to say whether the odor was that of fresh or burnt marijuana because under the case law, both types of odors can lead an officer to reasonably suspect that marijuana is present. Moreover, while the odor of unburnt marijuana may more strongly suggest the presence of additional marijuana than the odor of burnt marijuana, the latter provides a greater suspicion that the driver of the vehicle 
was driving under the influence of marijuana, a misdemeanor violation of Vehicle Code Section 23152F, or was smoking or ingesting marijuana while driving a vehicle, an infraction violation of proposed Vehicle Code Section 23221 Subdivision B. What about if no odor is smelled by an officer, but there is a canine alert? You know, canines are not, these drug canines are not trained uh, only to alert on an unlawful amount of marijuana. They alert whether it's a lawful or an unlawful amount. No, that's correct. However, a canine alert is likely to be viewed in much the same way as the odor of marijuana. The basic principle that evidence of the presence of marijuana provides probable cause to believe there might be unlawful possession is enough. If that principle is not accepted, no search will be allowed. If it is, the search should be proper. Although, because an alert also is consistent with there being unlawful amounts of other drugs as well, there is even greater probable cause to search the vehicle based on the canine alert than an officer's smelling of marijuana. Let's say there's not an odor of marijuana, but the officer sees a small amount of marijuana in the car. Will that be enough post Prop 64 to do a search of a vehicle? The analysis will not be that different than the analysis based on smelling the odor of marijuana. Just like the smell of marijuana provided probable cause to search a vehicle before the passage of Prop 64, so did seeing a small amount of marijuana, regardless of the fact that the possession of less than an ounce of marijuana was a misdemeanor or an infraction punished only by a $100 fine. For example, in People versus Day from 2001, the court held the presence of a single marijuana bud among defendant's effects in the passenger compartment of the vehicle he was driving provided probable cause for the search of the vehicle, including the trunk. Moreover, in both Strasburg and Waxler, the officer was entitled to conduct a search based on seeing less than an ounce of marijuana in a vehicle, albeit in conjunction with smelling marijuana, even after the passage of the medical marijuana laws that rendered possession of marijuana lawful under certain circumstances. Patrick, do you think the analysis changes at all if the person who is suspected of, uh, who's been pulled over and whose car is about to be searched is under 21? It could make it easier to justify the search. The analysis of probable cause would be the same, but the defense would not have the argument, like they do with adults, that possession of a small amount of marijuana in most circumstances is lawful. Any possession by a juvenile is unlawful. That is, the cases allowing searches of adults of adults' vehicles pre-Prop 64 have even greater precedental value when it comes to searches of a juvenile's car post-Prop 64 than they do for allowing a search of an adult's car pre-Prop 64. Patrick, do you think based either on smelling marijuana or seeing a small amount of marijuana that an officer could conduct a search of the vehicle under the search incident to arrest exception as opposed to the automobile exception, the exception which would uh, allow the kinds of searches we've been talking up to uh, to this point. That might be a little tougher to justify. Although probable cause to search is often similar to probable cause to arrest, they are not identical. While a search incident to arrest can precede the arrest, a search incident to arrest can only lawfully be conducted pursuant to custodial arrest. Thus, unless there is probable cause to arrest a defendant for a misdemeanor violation of possession or transportation of marijuana before the search of the vehicle takes place, this search incident to arrest exception could not be used. 
And it's difficult to say that a defendant could be arrested for being in a vehicle that had the smell of marijuana or just a lawful amount of marijuana inside of it, even if you did not have section 11362.1c, which prevents an arrest based on lawful conduct involving marijuana. May an officer search the vehicle based on seeing an open container of marijuana in the vehicle? That's only an infraction. Because it's infraction, it would not allow a search incident to arrest under state law. Although if an officer was unaware that a custodial arrest was not permitted and honestly planned a custodial arrest of the defendant, any evidence seized during the search could not be excluded. However, even assuming that a court is not prepared to accept the premise that seeing a small amount of marijuana provides probable cause to search a vehicle for additional amounts of unlawfully possessed marijuana, if the marijuana is being carried in an open container, there should be probable cause to believe that additional amounts of marijuana in open containers will also be found in the vehicle. Why do you think that, Patrick? Because we know in the analogous situation of seeing an open container of alcohol, at least one appellate court, People v. Chapman from 1990, held that officers, after observing the open container of alcohol, had the right to search the vehicle for additional containers of alcohol. Well, that's a good find, Patrick. But let's move from searches of vehicles to searches of persons. Will the odor of marijuana or seeing a person smoking marijuana allow a search of the person for more marijuana? Although there may be probable cause to believe a person may be carrying an unlawful amount of marijuana based on seeing the person smoking marijuana or detecting an odor of marijuana coming from the person, the argument that a lawful search of such a person may be conducted is weaker than the argument than when there is a small amount of marijuana or odor emanating from a vehicle. Why is that? Because even assuming there is probable cause to believe the person is carrying an unlawful amount of marijuana on his or her person or in an item being carried by the person, that is not enough to justify a warrantless search of the person. A warrantless search of the person or property under their immediate control, even though justified by probable cause, must still fall within an exception to the warrant requirement. Searches of persons or property under their immediate control for contraband, like narcotics, are usually justified under the exception for searches incident to arrest. And as I said before, these searches can precede a custodial arrest as long as the search is contemporaneous with the arrest and the officer had probable cause before the search to make the arrest. But there would have to be probable cause to make a custodial arrest of the person for possession of an unlawful amount of marijuana. It is somewhat doubtful that simply carrying under an ounce of marijuana or smelling of marijuana provides probable cause to arrest the person before a search is conducted. Would it make a difference in that situation if the person to be searched was a juvenile? Probably not. Since possession of less than an ounce of marijuana by a minor is just an infraction and there is no search incident to a non-custodial arrest exception to the warrant requirement, it might make a difference if the person under 21 was seen with marijuana on school grounds when children were present and the officer was aware the person had a prior arrest for being on school ground in possession of marijuana because in that situation, the person would be eligible for a custodial arrest. Well, based on that discussion, the answer to the question of whether an officer could arrest someone based simply on smelling the odor of marijuana coming from the person or seeing the person in possession of under an ounce of marijuana seems obvious. Yes, assuming that the defendant seen smoking or carrying marijuana is only in possession of less than an ounce of marijuana 
and it is not possessed in an area where possession is otherwise prohibited, Section 11362.1c clearly prohibits an arrest. What about merely detaining a person either inside or outside of a vehicle based on the odor of marijuana or seeing the person in possession of less than an ounce of marijuana? Expect defense counsel to argue that Section 11362.1 subdivision C would prohibit even a detention of the defendant. However, a counterargument can be made by prosecutors that, notwithstanding subdivision C of Section 11362.1, a detention of a person over 21 seen possessing a lawful amount of marijuana is permitted because subdivision C only prohibits detentions or searches based on conduct deemed lawful by this section. And when an officer detains someone for being in possession of a lawful amount of marijuana, the basis for the the detention is not the lawful conduct observed by the officer, but the reasonable inference that the person is in unlawful possession of greater than an ounce of marijuana. The rationale is similar to that allowing for searches of vehicles based on smell or seeing under an ounce of marijuana. However, even assuming the rationale for allowing vehicle searches for additional unlawful amounts of marijuana based on lawful possession of marijuana does not apply with equal force when the person is a pedestrian rather than an occupant of a vehicle, it does not have to be as strong an inference to justify detention of a person. This is because a detention need only be justified by reasonable suspicion rather than probable cause. But won't defense counsel argue that if officers could always detain a person based on seeing them in lawful possession of marijuana, it would effectively moot and undermine the intent behind the language in 11362.1 saying no conduct deemed lawful by this section shall constitute a basis for detention, search, or arrest. They may even argue that in determining whether a detention is permitted, the evidence of lawful conduct in possessing marijuana may not be considered at all in assessing reasonable suspicion to detain, even where there's other evidence that possession might be unlawful. While acknowledging there is some merit to the argument that allowing detentions based solely on seeing defendants in possession of a lawful amount of marijuana could be seen as thwarting the intent behind Section 11362.1c, prosecutors can point to the language from People v. Strasburg, uh, the 2007 case, that if a detention could not be based on seeing someone in possession of under an ounce of marijuana, every qualified patient would be free to violate the intent of the medical marijuana program and deal marijuana from his car with complete freedom from any reasonable search. By the same token, if every person could avoid detention based on possessing less than an ounce of marijuana, everyone would be free to violate the intent behind Prop 64 of preventing untaxed and unregulated sale of marijuana and deal marijuana with complete freedom from any reasonable search of their person. In any event, if a court is not prepared to permit detentions based solely on an officer seeing a defendant walking around in possession of a lawful amount of marijuana, prosecutors should make sure to explore whether there are additional facts present that, in conjunction with the smell of marijuana, or defendant's possession of under an ounce of marijuana that permits an inference the defendant may be in possession of additional unlawful amounts of marijuana and or is in possessing marijuana for an unlawful purpose. Of course, if the possession of less than an ounce of marijuana is taking place under the circumstances where it is unlawful, 
While acknowledging there is some merit to the argument that allowing detentions based solely on seeing defendants in possession of a lawful amount of marijuana could be seen as thwarting the intent behind Section 11362.1c, prosecutors can point to language from People v. Strasburg, 2007, that if a detention could not be based on seeing someone in possession of under an ounce of marijuana, every qualified patient would be free to violate the intent of the medical marijuana program and deal marijuana from his car with complete freedom from any reasonable search. By the same token, if every person could avoid detention based on possessing less than an ounce of marijuana, everyone would be free to violate the intent behind Proposition 64 of preventing untaxed and unregulated sale of marijuana and deal marijuana with complete freedom from any reasonable search of their person. In any event, if a court is not prepared to permit detentions based solely on an officer seeing a defendant walking around in possession of a lawful amount of marijuana, prosecutors should make sure to explore whether there are additional facts present that, in conjunction with the smell of marijuana or defendant's possession of under an ounce of marijuana that permitted an inference the defendant may be in possession of additional unlawful amounts of marijuana and or is possessing the marijuana for an unlawful purpose. Of course, if the possession of less than an ounce of marijuana is taking place under circumstances where it is unlawful, a detention would be justified even absent any inference the defendant was in possession of more marijuana. And if the person was a juvenile, a detention would indisputably be permissible since the possession of any marijuana by a juvenile would be unlawful. It would be no different than a detention for any other infraction. That's correct. What about houses? Can a house be searched without a warrant based solely on the smell of marijuana? So people versus uh, who, officers responded to a noise disturbance call, smelled burnt marijuana coming from an apartment, and saw someone smoking marijuana inside the apartment through a window. The court held the evidence of marijuana use did not establish an exigent circumstance justifying the warrantless entry into a home to preserve from eminent destruction evidence of a crime punishable by incarceration because the officer's observations did not necessarily suggest possession of more than 28.5 grams of marijuana, a non-jailable offense. And thus, the evidence sought to be preserved did not relate to a crime sufficiently serious to support a warrantless entry. Similarly, in People v. Tories' uh, 2012 case, the court held that the odor of burning marijuana coming from a hotel room did not support the belief that more than 28.5 grams of marijuana would be found in the room sufficient to justify an exigent warrantless entry. In light of these two cases, it is unlikely that seeing a small amount of marijuana or smelling burnt marijuana would be enough, especially in light of Section 11362.1c. All right, so we can't get into the house based on the smell or odor of marijuana, uh, probably under the exigent circumstances exception, but could we still get a search warrant based on smelling marijuana coming from a house? That will depend. Defendants will argue that Hua and Tories stand for the proposition that no probable cause would exist. And if all we have is what was seen in Hua and Tories, we want to encourage officers to develop additional evidence that there is likely to be unlawful amounts of marijuana to be present. But an argument can be made that the presence of lawful amounts provides probable cause to believe additional amounts exist. Won't we run into a problem unless we can show not only that the uh, amount that is present is unlawful, but that the possession rises to the level of a potential felony. In other words, there must be probable cause of additional circumstances that the possession in the house is a felony, right? Well, 
We might have to show that in order to get a warrant issued pursuant to Penal Code Section 1524, Subdivision A, Subdivision 4, which authorizes a warrant when the property or things to be seized consist of an item or constitute evidence that tends to show a felony has been committed or tends to show that a particular person has committed a felony. So we probably couldn't justify it under that subdivision. But we could get a warrant under Penal Code Section 1524A3, which permits a warrant to be issued when the property or things are in the possession of any person with the, in with the intent to use them as a means of committing a public offense or in possession of another who to whom he or she may have delivered them for the purposes of concealing them or preventing them from being discovered, even if the marijuana is an amount that is just a misdemeanor. How does that work? Because a public offense includes misdemeanors and even infractions, and it is reasonable to believe that a person with unlawful contraband, for example marijuana, in their house intends to use the contraband as a means of committing a public offense. All right, that sort of sums up some of the issues that might arise in attempting to get search warrants. Uh, one last question. Are the new laws enacted by Prop 64 retroactive to pending cases involving violations of Section 11357, 358, 359, and 360? Although we've seen motions filed by the defense arguing that any pending cases must be dismissed because Proposition 64 created, in, created new crimes and it would violate the ex post facto clause or rules against retroactivity to allow prosecution under the post Prop 64 versions of those sections. These arguments have fallen on deaf ears. Prop 64 did not create new offenses. It created new punishments for existing offenses. We have to apply the new punishment retroactively, but we can still proceed on the crime itself as a misdemeanor. Patrick, if prosecutors are facing arguments that Prop 64 prevents prosecution of pending cases as misdemeanors, or even as felonies, assuming circumstances exist allowing for a felony prosecution, we have extensive briefing on the issue available upon request. Any other questions, Jeff? No, not for now, Patrick. I think we can wrap up the show. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure.